From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. It's in the Scottish government's interest, not just to protect, obviously, public services, but also to show further divergence from the rest of the UK. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. The other factor playing into all this is Brexit. Neither political party will even contemplate relaxing EU migration. This is the elephant in the room, isn't it? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Plenty to talk about today. We've got the bonfire that's been put out. Uh, We've got uh, more on the inflation promise that may or may not be achieved. And we've got a drone superhighway as well. But first, Caroline, I want to talk about trains. (laughs) Do you? Yeah. This is the Department of Transport, surely, and the Trans-Pennine route. Yes, yet another... uh, government uh, takeover of a rail operating franchise. This is the end of the contract with First Group. The Transport Secretary Mark Harper says the government won't renew the contract at the end of the month after months of delays and cancellations. Now Northern Mayors are hailing this as a victory for their campaigning. First Group says it's disappointed by the decision that the number of cancellations had fallen dramatically by around 40% actually since they put in a recovery plan in February but we're now talking about I think it's five at last count uh, operator of last resort contract where the government's taken over operations in the UK? Yeah, I think you can't help but think that railways are in a bit of a crisis situation. I mean, close to where I live, there's a massive hole in the ground between Camden and Euston. It is related because the hoarding around it goes on for miles. It's got these annoyingly smiling engineers and hard hats talking about going places. What is it? It's HS2, of course, which is stalled, remember, the high-speed rail line that's meant to go from London to Manchester. Bloomberg's Matthew Booker's got really good piece on the terminal about it it's sad it's fascinating and he talks about the political lessons that you know britain breaking away from the eu was meant to be a promise of striking out uh, you know on on our own as it were and this flagship project is a signal that the confidence is not not there and i think this kind of question around vision and ambition for britain is is a hugely big issue going into the next election yeah and look it's a really interesting point to kind of think about this idea as well about ambition and and how these big projects are achieved it's mm. not easy to build infrastructure in most parts of the world so but it is a quite it does seem to be a particularly long time going for this high speed rail line it's 14 years the you know the the costs of uh spiralled and now uh, the detractors of course want it to be put out of its misery entirely but anyway that's on transportation um, the other story that, that did catch our eye of course is Penny Mordant on the front page of the Telegraph also been speaking to radio Yes, another star turn from the Commons leader, I feel, after her st- her role in the coronation. Uh, Penny Mordaunt has 
been, you know, the, the talk of the town is, we even brought it up actually uh, in our discussions as well of the coronation coverage too. They're holding the ceremonial sword, the teal cape. Yeah, and she's talked about it being a humbling day. And also I caught this line that I thought was really interesting in the Telegraph article. Um, this is a life lived in the public eye. The royal family sets a parenthesis. We politicians should heed this example. So I thought that was quite, yeah, the, the jokes around wielding a sword, cut and thrust, jeweled daggers. No, it's all in there. They're, it's going to follow Penny Morden throughout her career, surely. Now, some of the ghosts of Brexit past have been awoken with the news that the government won't make its target of scrapping the majority of EU laws that remain on the statute books in the UK. Instead, just around 600 of the 4,000 or so laws will be removed or replaced by the end of this year. The announcement provoking a backlash from those hard Brexiteers in the Tory party and our political reporter Alan Milligan is with us for more on this. Alan, look, there were lots of warnings running up to this that this goal wouldn't be met. Why does it appear to have surprised so many people? Well, there's an inevitability to this retreat from the government, this policy to repeal all EU law, um, or most of it by the end of uh, this year was born out of a tussle between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak vying for the Tory leadership over the summer, um, and brandishing their Brexit credentials to the to the mostly Brexit supporting Tory membership. And it, it became a kind of I will do it in a short amount of time and I'll do it in just a few months. And there were there were competing um, press releases almost on a weekly basis over this. Um, And almost immediately you got warnings from businesses, environmental groups, um, worker groups about the government um, and how uh, the government's plans and how a lot of EU law underpins, you know, UK employment law, for example. And also, I mean, we reported last year that senior civil servants had asked the government to delay this until 2026 because it just wasn't viable to do this by the end of the year. Um, Mm. So obviously, of course, um, yesterday you saw Kemi Badenoch um, retreat from this and and now only about 550 um, laws will be put forward to pass a parliamentary vote as to whether they'll be repealed. But I think the surprise... I guess, has come from the the right of the party. I remember talking to people about the Northern Ireland Protocol and the Brexit supporting MPs, some of whom, whom were happy to accept this new Windsor framework because this other bill that was being passed through about repealing EU law, they felt like that um, was a good compromise. So I think there's mm. a lot of disappointment from that side of the party. That's quite interesting. I mean, the disappointment seem, uh, seems to be writ large by Jacob Rees-Mogg, the, the former um, Tory minister, who's been very critical today. What's he been saying? Yeah, he's been on the, on the radio this morning, very critical. I mean, he was the one who put forward this bill. He he created this bill on, on Liz Truss's orders, so it's it's personal to him as well. He called it a great missed opportunity. He tweeted yesterday that, regrettably, the Prime Minister has shredded his own promise rather than EU laws. He's not the only one. John Redwood has also gone public with his with his dissatisfaction with the move, um, but also a number of pro-Brexit Conservative MPs met with the Chief Whip, Simon Hart, late yesterday to express their fury um, at the plans. Um, I'm, 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 I'm told that um, the MPs were told by Simon Hart to reconsider their climb down, um, but clearly th- this is something that, um, that in the context of, of 
of other issues um, that Rishi Sunak is facing from his backbenchers, including a poor set of local election results, um, might prove tricky for him. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder, rumblings from MPs, I mean, Jacob Rees-Mogg obviously uh, quite prominent, but is this an actual threat to Sunak? Well, Conservative prime ministers in the past have, uh, and only in recent years, have faced significant pressure from that part of the party. I think it depends what you coin as a threat. I don't think there's a threat to his um, leadership. I think most Tory MPs um, very much feel like they should stick with the same leader after such turmoil um, and only about a year out from a general election. It's more about placing pressure on him and they feel like they're in a position where they can place pressure on him to change his plans. You saw that over the immigration bill that Suella Braverman's pushing through. There were a number of amendments put forward from the left and right of the party. Um, a number of MP- Conservative MPs have written in The Sun today asking Rishi Sunak to do more on levelling up. Um, and of course, you've had this backlash over the EU change law bill um, yesterday as well. So what you're seeing is MPs on all sides of the party may be feeling like Sunak after local elections is in a weaker position and Mm. they're able to leverage that to get their asks. And of course, the context of this is that they're worried about their own own seats in the next general election. Yeah, of course. Look, the, the politicking aside, though, what about these EU laws? Is it a symbolic process? Because that's sort of what the critics um, have pointed to. It isn't. It makes a real difference. Where are we in that judgment of how much of a difference it makes to get just to ditch these laws or, or, or repeal them? So um, I was talking to people um, in the department yesterday about this, and it's quite hard to get an answer out of them as to what laws in particular they're looking at repealing. They are um, going to publish a list this week, so we will get more clarity. But yesterday, also as part of this announcement, they announced that they're um, reforming um, the EU working time directive that has been placed into UK employment law. Mm. So now um, they're consulting on a policy that means companies won't have to keep track of how many hours their their, um, employees are working. So they're going to retain the 48-hour working week cap, but companies won't have to keep track over that. Now, that's been criticised as um, repealing, you know, UK important UK employment law. Um, so that's one of the areas that they're looking at and one of the real like, worries that um, particularly trade unions have. OK, Ellen Milligan, thank you so much for bringing us up to date on the latest on that story. That's our political reporter, Ellen Milligan. So one of the big five promises made by the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was to halve inflation by the end of the year. Remarkably, that uh, is actually looking like a much more difficult ask than it was only a few weeks ago. Martin Wheel, who's Professor of Economics at King's Business School, also a former member uh, of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, was with us, Stephen, earlier on Bloomberg Radio talking about this because he's an honorary fellow at the think tank NISA. And NISA is also one of the organisations that says that actually the Prime Minister is not going to be able to make this target. And we asked Martin Wheel about this earlier. Have a listen to what he had to say. I think there is a real risk that inflation won't halve. I mean, forecasts are you know, the best any forecaster can do, but no one expects the numbers to turn out exactly as was forecast. Uh, inflation could be lower than the National Institute has forecast or it could be higher. 
Okay, so that was Martin Wheel speaking to us a little bit earlier. Lizzie Burton's with us in studio now for more on this. It, I mean, it's kind of hard to believe. We sort of scoffed silently when uh, Rishi Sunak announced this goal because we thought, well, of course, inflation's going to come down by half by the end of the year. Um, how big a deal is it if this doesn't come to pass? It was mechanical. I mean, not just us economists said mm. it was mechanical. It was um, unambitious that it was like targeting for the sun to fall in the evening. But it would be difficult, to say the least, for Rishi Sudak if it doesn't happen, given he's made it his number one priority. Now, you might ask why he took this risk, given the Bank of England has more control over fighting inflation than the government. But we've also heard from Mohamed Alarian uh, this morning, friend, of course, of Bloomberg, but he was speaking to the BBC. He said that the BOE needs help from the government and others in order to bring inflation down from double digits. But the point from NISA is that they don't see inflation halving by the end of the year necessarily and by setting this target it potentially interferes with the Bank of England's inflation fighting mission because you play with inflation expectations. Yeah and and that is that's also something that I think is hard for people to understand is it? it's the expectation also that people have of where inflation is going to go that is people both businesses and consumers that actually is a huge factor within you know where inflation goes but it's not as if Nisa is really pinning its colors to the mast is it let's be clear here they're saying that it's a sort of a possibility they're raising it as a red flag um as a as a danger so how serious should we take it? I mean, they are forecasters after all. We can't expect certainty from economists. They don't have crystal balls. They're highlighting it as a potential risk. Look, but I do think that anyone who's listening to this politics podcast and maybe isn't as across economics as some of us nerds at Bloomberg is to take away that what the Bank of England can control or hope to control is expectations. That's why language is so important. This is kind of what the governor was trying to control when he said you should restrain yourselves uh, in your wage bargaining or words to that effect. Mm. Or when the chief economist Hugh Pill said that people should accept that they're better off. What they're trying to do is stop wages and prices from chasing each other upwards so that inflation can be brought back to the 2% target. And also, I want to go one nerdier than that, I'm afraid to say, um, Lizzie, which is just to be very clear about the numbers, right? Uh, Inflation um, hit 10.1% when the Prime Minister talked about the idea of halving inflation. And NISA are talking about it falling only to 5.4% by the end of 2023. So you're talking about tenths of 1% of a miss in terms of halving inflation that he wouldn't quite make it. So it's not as if they're saying that inflation wouldn't really drop very significantly. Do you think that's going to matter to Labour? Uh, true. Or to voters. I mean, honestly, this question of, of how much people are paying for things, like think about things like food price inflation. You know, one of the things that we are seeing remaining stubbornly high, this, for for in terms of how it hits people in their pockets, is, is going to continue to be serious, whether it's, you know, even 5% is a lot. But maybe flip that on its head. Because mm. a conversation that I've been having is, are people taking all of this seriously enough? You know, we aren't out there with our pitchforks complaining about inflation. Yes, there are strikes across the country, but you can see the economy is pretty strong, actually. They've got, you've got lots of warnings about the economy overheating. 
food price inflation is really hitting the poorest in society. But you've got a whole swathe of society that is still out there dipping into their pockets and spending their savings. You've got to ask whether the fear about inflation really is going is transmitting. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the other perspective, isn't it? Um, Thank you so much to our UK correspondent, Lizzie Burden. Well, let's hear more now from our interview with Martin Wheel. He had some other really interesting comments to make about where the UK economy goes from here. I think the issue that we're facing is that, at least traditionally in Britain, wages are more sensitive to price movements in the UK than they are in the United States. And what we're seeing is upward pressure on wages largely as a consequence of the upward pressure on prices that we've had. And that, of course, can sustain the inflation. So, I mean, how rapidly it'll come down from current levels, I'm not sure. I think there are good reasons for expecting it to come down. But... uh, Coming, just coming down isn't enough. We need inflation back to 2%. Yeah, we do. The UK economy, though, has shown quite remarkable resilience. Is the next huge drop the UK consumer? Renters, £2,500 for rent in London. Is there? There's a feeling, I think, perhaps that things are very, very positive, perhaps too positive at the moment for you know, the concerns around the UK economy? Well, people have become quite optimistic compared with the situation or the environment in January. And OK, so possibly we'll avoid a recession. But actually, what we're get it likely to get is just very miserable economic growth. Remember, Britain has a low growth problem relative to the rest of the G7, relative to the G20. And I don't think that's really going to change. How much is all this the government's fault? We've heard from Mohamed Alarian this morning saying the BOE needs help from the government and others to bring inflation down from double digits. Well, the Bank of England has the job of controlling inflation through monetary policy, through the interest rate. Uh, I'm not sure how much help it would need from the government, but... uh, no, it, uh, it should focus on the job of bringing inflation back to the 2% target. There is, of course, pre- on the fiscal side, pressure on the, on the Chancellor to, to cut taxes from, from many within his own uh, party. Is that something that, that he should be considering? Well, if you look at it over the, from the perspective of the last 20 years, we've had several periods when the national debt has increased you know, fairly markedly because of financial crisis, no COVID, th- no things like that. And, and uh, if you let the national debt go up in response to adverse circumstances and never bring it down, you can just see that in the long run it will rise without limit and uh, that will impose a, bird, a tax burden on the country that it won't want to face. So my view is that it would be a mistake to cut taxes at the moment. And was the Bank of England governor right to tell people that they shouldn't be asking for pay rises or they should restrain their wage bargaining? Well, that was obvious, <clears throat> obviously a comment that uh, generated you know, quite a lot of rather strong feeling. I think what he was trying to convey is that the country as a whole is poorer and no, there's a question about who bears the burden or how the burden is spread, but you can't get rid of the burden just by putting up wages. But is it for the bank to worry about how the burden is spread? I don't think it's for the bank to worry about how the burden is spread, but bring, the task of bringing inflation down does become harder if wages rise sharply in response to price increases.
So that was Martin Will, Professor of Economics at King's Business School, former uh, MPC member at the Bank of England and also, of course, at the think tank, NISA, speaking to us. Now, the UK will this summer begin testing a world first in technology, a super highway for drones in the sky. The project approved by the government last year. It's backed by a consortium of tech startups. Is this the sort of project that Jeremy Hunt was talking about when he said he wants to make the UK the next Silicon Valley? Well, Bloomberg opinion columnist Dave Lee joins us now. He's been writing about this. Dave, great to have you with us um, on the show. Let's talk about this super highway. First of all, I'm really glad that you referenced the Jetsons in your piece because this gave me a very (laughs) clear idea as to what it, uh, what it should be anyway. Can you just give us an idea of what this project is about? Yeah, you almost need to choose your sci-fi metaphor, right? It's either Does the it age or terribly? It's Futurama or yeah. Blade Runner, maybe. I don't know. That's the one I went with anyway. Um, I mean, it, it sounds just kind of how it sounds. It's a super highway. It's going to be in, in the sky. It's going to be um, well, it's going to span 165 miles across the UK, joining places like Rugby, Coventry, Milton Keynes, Oxford, uh, and it'll be about six miles wide. And the idea is, is this will be a monitored, managed airspace where drones carrying, say, Amazon packages or eventually even people um, would be able to use this airspace and importantly, you know, interact safely in that in that space. So that obviously you don't want drones clattering into each other and falling out of the sky. If 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 the space is needed for say a helicopter, that can work as well, and the drones should, in theory, uh, in, um, you know, react to that that coming in. So. It's an incredibly ambitious idea. It, I think it, you know, it makes my imagination go wild. But of course, whether people like yeah. the idea of all these drones in the sky, that's 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 the big issue, I suppose. I mean, it's totally mind-boggling, isn't mm. it? I mean, I have spoken in the past, for example, to people who have been involved in the air taxi industry, and that seems sort of so kind of far-fetched and in the future. But maybe it's not. Drones are coming. How how do you think the testing phase is going to go? What might it lead to? So so the testing phase is going to be on a very small portion of the of the highway, um, probably around Coventry. They're still sort of working out those details, and it's going to be a lot about just testing this technology. So the the companies involved, one of them's BT, which obviously people are familiar with. There's another one called Altitude Angel, and their their business in is in unified traffic management, making sure that different drones made by different manufacturers working in different ways can interact with each other and not crash into each other. And that's a big challenge. And the way they're going to do it is essentially imagine you have a, a mobile our phone masks like we have today Mm. they generally point down to us so we can use our phones they're essentially you know pointing it upwards so these things can have connectivity in the sky to make that possible and that's going to be what they're testing they're also going to test you know the business models right i mean what what would people use these drones for what's the practicality of say delivering packages with drones delivering uh, organs for transplant by drone that kind of stuff mm. and the idea is hopefully you know these are things that need to be in places quickly it means there's less traffic it's a greener way of getting these things around so that that, that that's the the general gist of what they want to to test here and that that test will run until uh, about the autumn. Can I ask a very obvious question? What about the noise? See, this is the big one, isn't it? Because I've been to various sort of demonstrations of drones, whether it was with Amazon or other companies, and they always say, oh, you'll be surprised at how quiet it is. And then the thing goes up in the air, and I think, no, that's not quiet at all. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't sound quiet in the slightest. It might be quiet compared to the previous model, but it's certainly, you know, something that people might not be happy about. Look, it's getting better all the time, certainly, and there's also ways around it. One of the interesting um, trials that uh, an Australian supermarket, Coles, used was to deliver packages by not having the drone lower its 
itself to the ground, but to have this sort of tether that fell off when the package uh, was delivered and was biodegradable. So he just sort of sit there on the ground. And it's clearly, you know, as well as the policy questions about, you know, how you safely do this, that question of are people going to want these things buzzing in the sky? That to me feels almost a bigger hurdle than the technological challenge itself. Yeah, I mean, that that is wild, isn't it? Um, Hunger Games is what it reminds me of, frankly, of <laughs> little items falling from the sky exactly where you might need them. I mean, how high up also is it? That's another kind of really obvious question, I suppose. If it goes with the, you know, with the noise, it's not that high off the ground then. Well, the, the bigger drones, the ones that make serious noise will be much higher, kind of like a traditional, not as high as a traditional plane, but you know, if the ones having people in them, for example, would need to be much higher than sure. the ones having packages just because of the, the nature of them. Um, so yeah, maybe several hundred feet high um, okay. with the different, the different layers. I mean, it's interesting to bring this back to to politics and this, you know, big, big hopes the government has for the UK to be a leader in tech. Is this a a space for the UK to be a global leader? I think it is. I think it is. It's it's interesting because, you know, I've since, you know, spent the last few weeks here in London, I've been sort of catching up with, um, you know, VCs in in, in this, this part of the world. And, you know. Brexit affords these kind of opportunities in t- to be distinct from from other markets in a way that perhaps wasn't possible before. And so, with something like drones, the UK can say, right, we're going to build our own regulations here. We're going to decide the rules of the air, so to speak, in, in in the way we we envision. And so, you know, that is a way to perhaps be further ahead than than uh, the US, further ahead than other parts of Europe, um, in, in making these things these things a reality. Now, you know. The UK has long held this ambition of being a tech hub and where it's excelled in the past is kind of having very good specialist areas. It's been very strong on AI. It's been very strong on fintech. I think drones could perhaps be another uh, one of those sectors that the UK does uh, particularly well in. One of the concerns, though, mm. um, I, and there was a, a report by PwC looking at the viability of drones in the UK. One of them is you know, you, we're going to have to train a lot of drone specific qualifications into 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 young people to know how to be um you know how to operate not just operate the drones but this this ecosystem in which they need to uh, exist in and so as anything it's it's all well and good to have the the intent and these you know speeches where we hear what well, the uk is going to be the next silicon valley what it really needs is people to be investing and also skills to be created in the country to make it possible as well yeah i mean the skills gap is a sort of perennial issue particularly around tech around digitalization mm. but yeah that it could even apply to drones such an interesting story thank you so much to dave lee for bringing it to us our bloomberg opinion columnist of course i'll thank dave especially it's been a few years since we've seen each other but we are friends of old oh, in reunions fact. all around yeah, today that's it from us for today if you like the programme don't forget to subscribe you'll give it five stars whether people can find it on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you listen this episode was produced by Chris Pitt and our audio engineer was Marufa Hussain I'm Caroline Hepke and I'm Stephen Carroll we'll be back with more tomorrow this is Bloomberg Bloomberg UK Politics listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.